Well, I can say that I'm very honored to be here tonight to participate in this great study. I was really uh, curious as to when I first attended one of these studies. In fact, I attended the first one that they ever had. And I called around, I couldn't find anybody that was still alive to talk to and finally found one. And he assured me it was in 1958, that's 64 years ago. And we met in Wichita Falls, Texas, and we studied for two solid weeks. And we sat on hard benches the whole time. But we learned some great principles that still linger in my heart to this very day. So it's a great privilege to be here tonight. You know, I occupy this pulpit and I am worshiping with the congregation that I worship with in Shreveport. And I'm associated with these men and these women that are in this assembly. And all of it is tied to the subject that I have for your consideration. You know, I was raised in a church that was called the Church of Christ. But they use individual cups and loaves, or many loaves, that Greg talked about today in the communion. When I was 15 years old, I looked around and I realized that these men that had preached such great sermons about the authority of God's word were not following those principles all of the way. So my mother and I made a change and we began worshiping with a church that uses one cup and one loaf just as Jesus Christ established it. But I want to say that those men that preached, preached some of the greatest sermons that I have ever heard and those sermons still linger in my mind this day. So I'm thankful for those men and what they taught. I am just sorry that they didn't follow those principles all the way. You know, for more than 200 years, churches of Christ have been pleading with the religious world that we restore New Testament Christianity in all of its purity and its simplicity. And all of it is based upon exactly what I'm talking about tonight, the authority of God's word. Our motto has been that we will speak where the Bible speaks and we will be silent where the Bible is silent, which of course is just a takeoff on 1 Peter 4 and 11 where the apostles said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So I'm thankful to be a part of that restoration plea. And I'm glad to pro propound to you tonight God's standard of authority. This word authority, I think, is a very important term, and we should understand exactly what is the standard of authority in the religion of Jesus Christ. 
You know, without understanding that standard, there is no basis for discussion. When I was a very young preacher, I discussed with a Catholic friend of mine and to the middle of the night, our differences. As long as he could give any semblance of a of Bible authority, he would do so. But then when I would show to him that that really didn't apply, he would say, well, the church has the right to change it. And so about two o'clock in the morning, we ended that discussion and I told him, I want to study with you again, but we have got to agree upon a standard of authority. Without that standard, you and I have no reason or no basis for religious discussion. So what is our standard of authority in Christianity? The best definition that I've found for the word authority is this one, the right to command and to enforce obedience, the right to act by virtue of office, station, or relation. That covers it all, doesn't it? Of course, the one who has the right to command and enforce obedience is God. And you and I have the right to act only within that authority. That is the only authority that you and I have, and that is to act within that authority. There are two kinds of authority. There's what we might call primary authority. That's the authority of a sovereign who has the highest position of authority. He's under the authority of no one. And then there is delegated authority, authority that is passed on from the one who has primary authority to others. Well, of course, you and I realize that God is the sovereign of the universe. He has primary and direct authority. He is the one who is above all. The Apostle Paul, in talking about the doctrine of headship in 1 Corinthians 11 and 3, said, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. God is at the top of the ladder. Under him is Jesus Christ, and then man. You know, I like to use 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 to show this ascendancy of authority. The apostle says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. All things are of God. That, of course, includes authority. But he has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. That's the first delegation of authority from God, who is the sovereign, to Jesus Christ, his son. But then the apostle talking of himself and the other apostle said, he's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. And then finally he said, he's committed to us, that is to the apostles, the word of reconciliation. I believe that expresses to us the ascendancy of authority. Delegated authority, of course, began with the Lord Jesus Christ. He said all things were of God who has uh, reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ, his son. You know, when Jesus was here, he never claimed originality 
in what he preached. He said in John 14 and 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you heard is not mine, but the Father's that sent me. Jesus recognized the primary authority of Almighty God. But I want, I, I want you to notice that there's kind of a transition that begins to take place. We read about the wonderful trend, uh, transformation or, uh, that in Matthew, the 17th chapter, where you remember how that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and the apostle Peter made the rash uh, suggestion that they have three tabernacles, one from Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus Christ. Well, God called uh, Moses, who represented the Old Testament law, Elijah, who represented the prophets, to fade from the scene. And we read in verse 5, While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. From that time forward, we know that we're not to listen to Moses and his law or Elijah and the prophets, but we're to listen to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, we read in Matthew, the 28th chapter, the 18th verse, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given unto me. All authority belongs to Jesus. That doesn't leave anything for you and me, does it? If I could tell you about all of the authority that I possess in the realm of religion tonight, it would be a big zero. If I talked about the authority that you as individuals have, it would be a zero. And if I talked about all of the authority that all of us present have in the realm of religion, it would be zero. And so the total is zero. How foolish it is today for men to meet in conferences and synods and legislate for God. Because all authority belongs unto Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, the first chapter, the first two verses, the Bible says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son." whom he hath appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus occupied the highest position next to God. He was next to the Father. He was the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. And so that first delegation was to Jesus. But then the second delegation was to the apostles. He said, all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to his, by, uh, by his Son, and hath committed unto us this ministry of reconciliation. The apostles were the ones who received this first delegation from Jesus Christ. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, the 18th verse, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Then he says to his apostles, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus said, all authority is mine. 
But now I'm going to send you forth as my ambassadors, as my representatives to preach my word. You see, Jesus had said in Matthew 18 and 18, Assuredly, I say to you, speaking to his apostles, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He gave them binding and loosing authority. You know, when the apostle Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus blessed him, said he would build his church upon that foundational truth. But then he said to Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now we know that these apostles did not act on their own ability. God gave to them the Holy Spirit so that they could speak with inerrancy. As they, pro, uh, as they uh, carried out this delegation of authority that God had given unto them or that Jesus had given unto them. Because we read over in John 16 and 12, the words of Jesus to his apostles, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. You know, that's exciting to realize that these apostles were going to be guided into all truth by the Spirit of God himself. And those apostles are still exercising that authority today. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 19 and 28, Assuredly I say to you, speaking to his apostles, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The regeneration, of course, is simply that a process by which a person is born again. And that process began on the day of Pentecost. And the apostles were during this time to sit on thrones. That is, they were to exercise this authority that had been given to them by Jesus Christ our Lord. And so they're still exercising that authority this very day. So to hear the apostles is to hear Christ. You see, in Luke 10 and 16, Jesus said to these apostles, He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. There's your ascendancy of authority again. He said, if they, they hear you, they're hearing me. And if they hear me, they're hearing the Father himself. You know, it's interesting, in Acts 2 and 42, after the church was established, the Bible says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine was the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who hears you, hears me. The apostle in 1 Corinthians 14 and 37 said, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual let him acknowledge that the things which I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. The apostle 
who was born out of due season, the Bible says. He said, if you hear me, you're hearing the Lord himself. Well, how do we hear the apostles? Well, the apostle said in 2 Corinthians 5 and 19, after he had said all things are of God, who's reconciled us to us, uh, to himself by his son, has committed unto us, the apostles, the minister of reconciliation. He says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us, what? The word of reconciliation. So the word that was received by the apostles is that authority that you and I must recognize today. The apostle tells us that that authority is expressed in words. In 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, he said, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things, now this is an apostle speaking for himself and the other apostles, these things we also speak not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but words which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so the authority of the apostles is revealed to us in words. Well, what word? Is it the word of the Old Testament or the New Testament? Well, of course, you and I know that the Old Testament or the Old Testament law was given unto Israel. It's not given to you and me. In Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 3, Moses called all Israel. To whom is he speaking? Israel. And said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord made our covenant with us in Horeb, in Sinai, the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. So you and I are not under the law of the Old Testament. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Old Testament was taken out of the way and nailed to the cross of the Lord Jesus. Over in Colossians 2, 14 through 17, the apostle talking about the Old Testament law he says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And then to let us know that he's talking about that Old Testament law, he talks about some of the practices of that law under which we are not uh, uh, obligated today. He said, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. You know, Jeremiah, hundreds of years before this, had prophesied a new covenant. He said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And when we read the book of Hebrews, we find how the apostle shows how that this prophecy of Jeremiah was fulfilled to the letter. 
that there was a new covenant that came and the old covenant was done away. In Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 13, he said, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Then in verse 13, he said, In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now that which is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. The Old Testament law, the old covenant became obsolete when the new covenant was established through the death of Jesus upon the cross. In Hebrews 7 and 12, he said, For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity also, a, a change of the law. In Hebrews 10 and 9, he said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. That's Jesus. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. We read all of this also in Galatians 3, where it tells us that the Old Testament law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But after faith has come, we're no longer under that schoolmaster. And so we ask the question, are we under law today? Do we have a law? Yes, it's called the law of Christ. In Galatians 6 and 2, he said, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And of course, the words of the New Testament form that law. I like the words of James. I think he explains it well. He said in James 1, 21 through 25, Therefore I lay aside, uh, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he is. Now look at the transition that takes place. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. He calls it the Word, the Word of God. And then he calls it a perfect law of liberty. Well, what is a law? You know, the best definition that I've ever found of a law is this one. Rules for modes of conduct made obligatory upon man by some controlling authority. Force impelling to action. A law is made up of rules. God's people have always been under law. Adam and Eve were under law. They had rules to obey. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were under law. They had rules to obey. And then, of course, came the written law of God, the Old Testament law. And today, you and I are under the law of the Lord Jesus Christ. McClintock and Strong call it a rule of action. And that, of course, goes along with what James said in James 2 and 12 when he said, So speak and so do 
as those that will be judged by the law of liberty. You know, Jesus had said in John 12 and 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him at the last day. It's a rule of action, but it's also something that we must do. James said, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So it's a rule of action. It's something that we must do. People that tell us all you have to do is just believe. Have not read James as they should have read James. Well, what's the nature of that law? Well, it's a perfect law. James says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty. Mr. Thayer in his Greek English lexicon says that the word perfect there means wanting nothing necessary to completeness, brought to its end, finished. So what we have in the words of the New Testament is the final and complete will of Almighty God. It is God's perfect law for us. It supplies all good works. That was read earlier in this study. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Sometimes today, People will justify a religious uh, work or doctrine on the basis of its being good. But it's not good. It's not a good work unless it is authorized by the word of God himself. Insomuch, the Bible says we've not to go beyond it. The Apostle Paul or John said in 2 John 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. The doctrine of Christ is simply the teachings that are authored by Jesus Christ. And the teachings of the apostles are just as authoritative because they, are de they were delegated that authority by Jesus himself. And the apostle tells us that we're not to transgress it. We're not to go beyond it. The word transgress simply means to progress beyond, to go beyond, or to go onward. You know, I like the words of a fellow that was quoted earlier today from College Press. Uh, I wonder sometimes why they will say these things and not abide by them. He said a good deal of false teaching has been done in the name of progress. There is a universal desire to move forward. Against this, John warns everyone going ahead or progressing and does not remain in the teaching of Christ, has gone too far. He has progressed until he, is no, he no longer has God. That's when progress is wrong. Sometimes today they will call us non-progressives because we believe in a strict adherence 
to God's perfect law. I believe we're just as progressive as we need to be. The Bible tells us that we're to grow and progress in our moral and our spiritual lives. But when we go beyond God's law, that's when we have progressed so far, too far, and we find ourselves without our Lord. You know, we've read often that apocalyptic curse in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, where John at the very end of this great book said, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Sounds much like Deuteronomy 4 and 2, doesn't it? You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. God does not want us to tamper with his word. We're not to add to it. We're not to take from it. It's the infallible word of God. It's all sufficient. It's alone sufficient. You can't improve on God's word. Somebody said, well, what about that liberty? The perfect law of liberty. Sometimes today people will take that word liberty and they'll translate it into license, that we have the license to do as we please. But you see, my friends, that liberty is simply the liberty or the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. A freedom from the bondage of sin as Paul said in Romans 6, 17 and 18, But God be thanked that you were the slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. We are the Lord's freed men, Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 7 and 22, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. The apostle said in Galatians 5 and 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And Jesus said in John 8 and 36, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Yes, we have liberty in Christ. But it's always liberty, it's always freedom within the scope of law. You see, we live in the freest country in all of the world today, but that freedom can be taken away from us very quickly. If we violate God's wonderful, or we violate the law of this land. You see, there is such a thing as a lawlessness. That word lawlessness in the New Testament comes from the Greek word anomia. And it's sometimes translated, um, I forget what it's translated. <laughs> but it simply means the condition of one without law, either because ignorant of it or because violating it. That, of course, is the definition that is given to us by Mr. Thayer. Somebody wrote these words, and I think it explains it so very well. 
He said lawlessness is a state or manner of life wherein one fails to conform to law. Whether in positive disobedience thereto or in failing to come up to its demands. It is action contrary to law, whatever form in which that action takes place. Lawlessness is simply not complying with God's law. It's not only violating that law, it's falling short of that law or refusing to obey that law. And that's a serious thing. Jesus talked about the seriousness of lawlessness in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, when he gives us a beforehand description of the last judgment. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Where is that will? It's in that perfect law of liberty. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Now, these are religious people. They've served the Lord with intended honor. But what's the outcome? He said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, never recognized you as my disciples. Depart from me. Why? You who practice lawlessness. These people will be lost on, on the day of judgment simply because they have acted without law or without the authority of God's law. You know, we read in the New Testament about an apostasy that was going to take place. The people at Thessalonica had become over-anxious about the second coming of Jesus. And so the apostle wrote to them these words in 2 Thessalonians 2. In verse 3, he said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the second coming of Christ, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Why? Verse 7, he gives the reason. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The apostasy was going to take place simply because people were acting lawlessly. They were acting without the authority of God's word. Why? Why did they uh, act lawlessly? Well, he tells us in verses 10 through 12, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who do not believe the word, uh, truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. That's serious business, isn't it? When people don't love the truth of God enough to keep his word as he is dictated in his word, and they just go on and do as they please, they're determined to do as they please. He tells us that God will send them strong delusion. Now, I don't know when that happens. I just know it does happen. And I think that I have witnessed a lot of people that are so deluded today. We must hang on to God's truth, regardless of the varying circumstances of life. You know, I often thought about, I think about an old brother down in, in Louisiana. His name was Bob Hollis. 
He would sit in his rocking chair in his living room and he would, he would tell me how thankful he was that somebody had taught him the truth. And every person in this audience tonight can thank the Lord that somebody has taught them the truth of God's word. We must stay with his truth. You know, the New Testament church was disturbed by lawlessness. We sometimes think that it's something that came later, but it was something that was happening even in the first century. And Paul said in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That means eternally separated from the presence of God. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He tells us these people had turned away to a different gospel. The King James Version says another gospel. And it comes from alos, which simply means another of a different kind. But he said it's not another. That comes from heteros, which means not another of the same kind. They had been removed to a different gospel of a different kind that was not a gospel of the same kind. Well, what kind was it? Well, it was a perverted gospel. That word pervert means to twist or to turn something to something entirely different. I think that the apostle was particularly referring to the Judaizing teachers of that time who were binding Old Testament practices on New Testament Christians. What were they guilty of? They were guilty of adding error unto truth. They had the truth of God's word. They believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but they wanted to teach something in addition to that. And that's what's happening in our religious world all the time. When we talk about being saved, the Bible tells us we're saved by faith. Man adds the word only. And thus they make it a perverted gospel. The Bible tells us we're saved by grace, but man adds only. He adds error unto truth and makes it a perverted gospel. When we talked about the cup today, Jesus took a cup and he gave that cup significance. But man says it's all right to have individual cups. Jesus took a loaf, a single loaf of bread, and he said it represents my body. But man said it's all right to have loaves. And makes it a perverted gospel. The Bible tells us in our worship we're to sing. Man says it's all right to play. When you add error to truth, you have a perverted gospel. And you see lawlessness is sin. John said in 1 John 3 and 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. What is lawlessness? It is the condition of one without law, either because ignorant of it or because violating it. What's the end of it all? It tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God 
is eternal life. It's not worth it, my friends, for us to go beyond that which God has given us in his word. Well, so what are we to do? Well, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 21, prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. The New King James says, test all things. Hold fast what is good. And of course, that word prove simply means to test or to scrutinize or to examine with the expectation of approving or disapproving. We need to test every doctrine and every practice in the religious world. Well, how are we to test it? Well, John tells us we're tested by God's word. He said in 1 John 4 and 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. He's talking about the prophets, those inspired teachers or those who claim to be inspired teachers. He said, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Then he tells us how to test them. He says concerning himself and the other apostles, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If you want to distinguish between truth and error today, you just prove it or you test it by the word of God. Listen to Paul again. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or a spiritual let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We're to prove it by what God says, not by what he doesn't say. What's the proper attitude for us? Well, first of all, we need to prove it all by the word of God. And in doing so, find out what is good and what is right and what is scriptural. Then hold it fast. Hang on it for, with all of your might. The wrong attitude is to have a position and then assume that it's good and then try to prove it by the word of God. And that's what happens so often and it sometimes even happens in the church of our Lord. And so in conclusion, I simply say that God's standard of authority is his word. And particularly we're talking about the New Testament. It's so important that you and I stay with the word of God. We must not be carried about by every wind of doctrine as the apostle once said. You know, there was a wise man who said, by the truth, and sell it not. Sometimes you'll hear a statement and you'll say, I just don't buy it. And there are many statements religiously that are being made today that we must not buy. But you buy the truth and you hang on to it with all of your might. We had an old preacher who was a very colorful preacher. And some of you will remember him. His name was Marion Franks. And he would say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's a good philosophy. Thank you for listening to me.